This is Masters in Travel, a rendezvous with the intersection of travel and business to accelerate your success. I'm your host, Whitney Schindler, owner of Undiscovered Sunsets. Each week, we have one goal in mind, to provide advice, insights, and resources to help you maximize your potential. Get ready to become a master in travel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Masters in Travel. I'm your host, Whitney. One of my favorite questions to ask advisors is knowing what you know now, what might you do differently if you went back to start your business all over again? So today I'm very excited to be joined by three fabulous advisors to dive into this topic. Kareen Johnson is the creator of Travel Biz Boss, podcast co-host of The Tin Lounge, and co-owner of Journey's Travel Company. Kareen, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Jennifer Jacob is COO and co-founder of Teak and the founder of Explorator Travel. Jennifer, welcome back. Thank you for having me. And Bailey White is the owner of Be The Travel. Bailey, I'm so happy to have you with us today. I'm happy to be here. When starting a business, it's almost certain that we all had a lot of ideas as to the type of business we wanted to build and just how we wanted to go about it. One of the most empowering elements of entrepreneurship is the opportunity to make all of these decisions for ourselves. On the flip side, the necessity to make so many decisions in that first year and beyond can also become quite overwhelming. I remember times in my first year when I didn't feel empowered and I didn't feel overwhelmed. I simply felt uncertain. I knew that I had options. I was surrounded by advisors with different business models that I could learn from. And I asked a lot of questions, but in many cases, I still found myself making the best decision I could at the time with the information that I had and simply hoping for the best. So before we dive into what we might all do differently, if we started our businesses from square one again, I feel that it's also important to gain a little bit of perspective and to know what each of our backgrounds are in, to know how we approach our travel businesses and to know what we were doing before we started our travel businesses. So Jennifer, what did you do prior to starting your business as a travel advisor? I was a recruiter for a healthcare organization and I managed the recruitment for all positions, everything from receptionist roles through the execs for 27 different hospital facilities. So it was completely out of the hospitality and tourism realm, but I was progressing in the organization and I always had this nagging sense of wanting to get into travel from when I studied abroad in Italy. And so when I got a promotion to manage these hospital facilities, I realized like, I am going to continue to grow in this organization and there's only so many opportunities where you're going to feel okay starting from zero again. (laughs) So before I got too far into my career from a monetary perspective, I decided to go ahead and make the leap and transition and, and start my business. Are there any skills from that world that you feel came into play that without thinking any skills or knowledge from your previous role that you applied when starting your travel business? From a business perspective, absolutely. And Robin, my business partner, and I talk about this all the time about how recruitment is what laid the groundwork because we both came from backgrounds in recruitment and we both were heavily involved in recruitment of our sororities as well. So it's just so funny to see the parallels of applying psychology and how you speak to people and how that translates to sales without it coming off as salesy and coming off more as relating to someone and connecting with them. And that's all that we do, right? We're giving them something that they already want, but we're putting it in a way that is educating and helping them create anticipation versus coming at them with this product and kind of slinging something that they they may not want, which they definitely want a vacation. So, <laughs> Bailey, tell us a little bit about what you did prior to starting your travel business and if there's anything you can think of, any skills, for example, that might have come from a previous experience that you brought into your new travel business when first getting started? Yeah. So I got into it pretty much right after college. I was a advertising PR major. I had a minor in hospitality, but not specifically for this reason. It's just coincidence. But I was in school and um, I had a lifestyle blog because that's what she did back then. And I was wrapping up um, an apprenticeship 
at an advertising agency in Nashville. And I was an intern for a couple semesters. They hired me on for an apprentice for like six months after I graduated. And then after that, I really had no plans. I grew up traveling, but not not a crazy amount. Like just, we went to Canada a few times, like skiing and a lot of domestic types of trips. I didn't do anything like crazy traveling. So I wouldn't say that that was like a big passion, but I did grow up in a family of entrepreneurs. So like my parents, my aunts, uncles, grandparents, everything from like real estate to multi-million dollar companies. So I think I definitely just had a draw to that world and that lifestyle that doing something of your own has to offer, but I didn't know exactly where that would take me. But I mentioned that I had a a lifestyle blog. I think my mom or a friend or something shared a blog post that I had done on Facebook. There was a local travel advisor in the area that saw it and was like, Hey, I need someone young to help me with like social media marketing type assistant work. And she was like, can I hire you on? And pay you 20 bucks an hour to help me. And I was like, sounds great. So I just went with it. And then I fell in love with the industry. Like it took me no time to fall in love with it. That is fascinating. Kareen, what did you do prior to starting your travel business? I was an optician. (laughs) So for many years, and I started out in a very, very high end boutique. You couldn't even try on a pair of glasses unless I took them out of the glass case to put them on you. I styled you It was very consultant type sales process. And then when I moved back to Orlando, I was recruited by basically the car lot of optical stores. So it's like I've been at the top and the bottom. I learned from both. And actually an analogy I like to tell people a lot is that, you know, these days you can go online and get a cool pair of glasses for $25. But that boutique that I worked in is still standing and it's very busy and people will go in there and they know they don't take insurance and there is no optometrist on site and you're going to drop probably a thousand dollars just on a pair of glasses when you go in the door. They know what they're walking into um, and it's still it's still thriving. So I think that I learned a lot about being more of a consultant than a salesperson when I started out at the boutique and then I learned (laughs) how to negotiate and how to handle really pushy people at the bottom of the barrel place. And uh, the bottom of the barrel place definitely sucked the soul out of it for me. I stopped enjoying what I was doing completely. And I'd always been interested in the travel industry. In a previous relationship, my partner worked at a travel agency. And saw Craigslist ad, this is aging me, (laughs) Craigslist ad in the early 2000s. And I dove in. So, and I obviously immediately fell in love with it. It was my passion to begin with. And I had been in sales for so long. And the agency that I worked for was very also hardcore sales, sales, sales. Um, So I was ready for it at the time. So it just fell in my lap perfectly. (laughs) So I've shared my background a few times on the podcast, but briefly, my approach to a travel business is a bit different than everyone's because I was actually working in a five-star hotel prior to starting my business but I was working on the operations side. So it's a little embarrassing to admit, but when I was working in the hotel, I still didn't know what a travel advisor was. I wasn't on the sales team. I wasn't attending trade shows. I was rather working with the teams who were greeting the guests when they arrived, who were making sure the restaurants were running smoothly, making sure that housekeeping was ticking all the boxes they needed to. So I was in a completely different world. Um, And our world was all about exceeding expectations every step of the way through the tiniest of details that you can think of and throughout the guest experience. So it was my job every morning to open TripAdvisor and to go through all of the guest surveys that we we were receiving and to turn that feedback into data that our hotel could use to launch improvement projects. So I was the first one to know when we received a positive review. I was the first one to know when we received a negative review. And then I would try to analyze and look deeper into this feedback to understand what does this mean? What can we do with this information in our hotel to make things better? And so this is how I approached my travel business from the beginning. I focused on all of the smallest, smallest details. And I was looking for ways that 
that I could exceed expectations of each client that I worked with. And I, in addition to that, I was also really interested in the data behind my business. Um, at the hotel, I was really entrenched in the analytics of all of our the feedback that we were receiving and looking at the PL statements and trying to understand how we could fund an improvement project. And so it was with all of this in mind that I began the journey with my travel business. So can everyone tell me briefly uh, to get started in just one to two sentences, what would you do differently if you started your travel business today, knowing what you know now? Jen, what would you do differently? The biggest thing that I would do differently would be to speak with a few different agency owners and ask that exact question. (laughs) So I went in very naive and just fresh and eager, and I didn't really know what a consortia was or what a host agency was. And I just felt like, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to jump in. And I ignored kind of like all feedback to the contrary, because I was just so eager. (laughs) And now I would have really explored various hosts and different commission structures, different consortia amenities. I would have just looked at things in a very different and analytical way and stepped back from that emotional response and evaluated in a more practical and monetary forecasting perspective. Okay. Okay. Just a quick follow-up question. Why do you feel like this is the biggest thing you would do differently? How do you think it might have affected your business If you made this decision at the beginning, how do you think it would have affected your business later on? Well, it was interesting because I joined a small host and I had a great experience. And so it is my biggest recommendation for people to speak with a few different hosts. The host that I was with was amazing, but we weren't necessarily selling the same type of travel. So I wasn't getting that fostering of information and training in the same direction that I was wanting to sell. So there were a lot of things that I did on my own to develop my knowledge and product insight, which in turn was a good thing because it created a real sense of hunger. And it was very much like I had to do it to make it happen. But I would say when you are with a host that is providing you with the training of the things that you want to sell, I can see how that would allow someone to ramp up faster. And so to me, I'm playing the long game, right? Like I'm not, I'm not necessarily concerned with learning the most, the quickest to me, I'm in it for the long haul. So I'm okay digging in and and getting that information myself, but just from a ramp up from a success standpoint, I think that making sure that your host One has a back office system that supports your reporting and is in a consortia where you're going to be able to showcase the value that you can provide, especially as a new agent, and then getting the information and the training that applies to what you want to sell, which a lot of the times you don't know in the beginning, but that's, that was kind of how I led myself to figure out what I did want to sell. So all of those things would have helped me learn faster and be more successful faster, I think. But all in all, learning experience had great mentorship and learned a lot from being with my original host. Okay. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, and please tell me if I'm not, it's not about good host versus bad host. It's more about understanding the type of business that you're looking forward to building and then finding the host that best matches that and finding the host that will provide the resources, the tools, and the training to support the type of business you're hoping to build. 100%. And when people have come to me and asked me, oh, do you have a recommendation for a host? The answer is no, because the host that I was originally with is a perfect fit for a multitude of agents. But then I would think of other agents or other host agencies, that would be a perfect fit for someone else that comes and asks for some consulting advice. So it is not good versus bad. It is very much, where do you see yourself? And I know that's a really hard question to ask at the very beginning, but I think most people come into the industry knowing what their passion, what direction their passion is going to lead them. If it's theme parks, if it's fly and flop, Caribbean beach vacations, if it's destination weddings, if it's a multi-leg FIT, you usually know in one one direction or the other. So I would I would ask those questions like what do the majority of your agents 
sell and what are the majority of your trainings targeted towards? I think it's important to remember too, that like you pay your host, like you have to make sure that you're getting, I mean, they're, they're serving you and it should be a really mutually beneficial relationship. Yes. I love that addition for sure. Bailey, what would you do differently if you started your business over today, knowing what you know now? Sometimes I like laugh at this question because I think a healthy, blissful ignorance probably aided in my confidence to jump in and do what we do. Um, I think that's kind of like the story for everybody because there's there's a lot of hardships that come with starting out. We all know that and travel. But seriously, I think when it comes down to it, the three biggest things are just like honing in on your ideal client knowing your worth and your value and not being afraid to charge for it. And then I think too, for me personally, just like not letting imposter syndrome, like scare you off from stepping into like the stream that you have and what you want to do with the industry. Kareen, what would you do differently? So it's uh, interestingly a little, I see a little bit in both of them, but I came from working for an agency that was extremely price focused. So I began my business from a place of fear. And now I know that you can build your business exactly the way you want to build your business if you have the confidence to do it. And it took me many, many years to learn that. So I would cast aside my fears. I would stop believing that all anyone cares about is the lowest price because that is the mindset that I was led to believe when I began in this industry. And I would get that confidence that these two had going forward. I wish that I, I, I came from a place of fear instead of that blind confidence. I wish I would have had that because I feel like I would have gotten to the business I wanted to build so much more quickly. So I would answer this question very similarly, and it would be kind of a combination of everything you've, you've all mentioned. And we've all hinted at our ideal client. And Jen, you said it perfectly that at the beginning, it's really, really hard to come up with who your ideal client is and to really be able to articulate it clearly. In my gut, I knew who it was from the beginning, but it took me years to be able to articulate it clearly. And I even feel like the pandemic gave me time to kind of take a step back and to further hone in on who my ideal client is. And I'm six years in at this point. So have you all clearly defined who your ideal client is? Can you say it today (laughs) clearly and confidently? And if so, how long did it take you to get there? Ideal client or clients we serve? Because sometimes that's different. (laughs) We've all commented on knowing who we want to serve, finding a host that serves those purposes, not being afraid of saying no, leaning in with confidence. So I think that that's also a very clear differentiation that we have our ideal client and that's important because that's who we're speaking to, that's who we're marketing to. But of course, it doesn't mean that we're only serving those people. We're of course serving other clients and that's how we decide where we draw the line and when to say no. Oh, I agree with that completely. I was just teasing because we do get our ideal clients some days and then pandemics hit and we get <laughs> we get our not ideal client or trip rather. It might be our ideal client, but they might not be our ideal trip. And I think that comes at different seasons of life as well. So to me, I can clearly articulate that my ideal client is an experiential traveler who wants a multi-leg trip that is going to give them a really diverse set of experiences and typically dabbling in gastronomy and vino culture. However, I've obviously adapted and watered that down during COVID to be more of a, my ideal client is someone who is going to a high level luxury Caribbean destination where I know that the level of service is never going to disappoint and they're still going to be completely overwhelmed with the beauty of their experience because I know that the property is going to deliver maybe the things that they couldn't get this year. The interesting thing about this topic coming up at this time for me is that I have been a generalist my entire career and due to the pandemic and because I just have all this spare time, I have decided to create from scratch a new ideal client niche. Like I have a brand new Instagram account. I am doing all of the work, all the phrases, all the words, breaking down exactly who that ideal client is. It's like this 
I had the safety net of, you know, my 3000 client database that's still contacting me. And this like my little side project where I'm starting to move in this direction. And hopefully I'll be able to sort of disperse some of the clients to my team that I'm that are no like over the next few years, I'm hoping to really move toward that niche. And it's exciting for me because like as an OG, I don't know the game, like building an audience and engagement on social media and all of the things that are really important. I, I know conceptually, but I haven't done it. So it's like I'm starting almost like a new business from scratch and doing all of those pieces that ideally I would have known to do 15 years ago. And it's it's fun and exciting. It's also a little bit scary, but I'm really enjoying it. And I like getting this perspective of what a newer agent is kind of going through to build a business. Yeah. I love this conversation because knowing your ideal client is like, I think it's so important. I wish someone had sat down with me and explained to me like why specifically to this, you know, industry, because across all industries, you know, you talk, you hear people talk all the time about their ideal client, but like, what does that mean in travel and why is it important to your quick success and yada, yada, yada. But we recently, like probably within the last year and a half or so, like got really specific and you can get very specific when you're building your ideal client and like give them names and everything like that. But we definitely have three or four that like are our go-to kind of like Jen said though, you know, sometimes you don't get your ideal clients and that's fine. And I know we're going to be talking a lot about what like that looks like when that does happen. But I think it's so important to know exactly who those ideal clients are so that you can be speaking to them directly, like on your social and marketing and all that kind of stuff. And even putting yourself in positions just like in your day to day life to be in front of those people and getting to know them. It's like, it's so important to be intentional about that. Can I add, you know, I know all of us have teams and we help newer advisors and we serve the community in general. And something that I keep finding is that people are so afraid to niche down or to develop an ideal client because they are afraid that then that means that's the only client they're ever going to get. And what are the chances and all of these things. And, and we keep trying to encourage them, right? Like just talk to your ideal client. You're still going to get other business and those clients are going to want other things. And for me, knowing what it's like to operate from that place of fear in the beginning, I just try my hardest to let people know you're not limiting yourself. They think they are limiting themselves and they are not. But if, if you are talking to your ideal client, if your messaging is pointed at the person you want to work with, eventually that's going to fill your books. And that's what you want. In the meantime, of course, you're going to take some other trips and whatever. But don't think that if you focus your messaging that you're going to be missing out. I understand why it looks like that, but it just isn't the truth in the end. I think one of the biggest eye-openers that came for me because I had the same belief. It, I believed that if I had a niche or a specialty in a certain type of a trip or a certain destination, that that's all I would be planning. I was so afraid that I would get bored or that I might not have enough clients who were looking for that type of travel. And then I started meeting advisors who really do say that they work in a particular niche and that they have a specialty. And so I asked them, what percentage of your total business falls within this niche or this specialty? And they would say, oh, like maybe 30 to 40%. Like what? I thought it was a hundred percent. When anyone ever talked about niching or finding a specialty, I always imagined that it was 100% of their business. And so when they told me this, I was like, oh, thank you for clarifying because now that feels a whole lot less scary. I agree with that because I think I had a niche before I knew I had a niche because I was scared of giving up everything else. So I was getting all of these inquiries for multi-leg Italy. And I was like, well, I don't want to say that I only sell multi-leg Italy, but like I kept on getting referrals for people because it, it was what I had a passion for. And you tend to sell what you have a passion for. Right. And luckily everyone has a different passion and, and, sells a different area of the world. And it was concerning to me that I would miss out on selling St. Lucia or selling Thailand because, oh my gosh, I'm only going to be the Italy person. But it took a lot of communication for me to say to my audience, I'm not only Italy, I'm not only Italy. And I look back and I think like, why was I communicating that? Because I was really good at selling that. I was getting plenty of business by doing that. Why not lean into what you're amazing at? And just really have great partnerships with people or even people on your team that can do all of the other stuff. And you can be 
incredibly successful in just going towards what you're very talented in. But it is a scary concept that you're sacrificing something to do that. I will say too, that like, that's probably one of the benefits of being a part of a smaller team. Like obviously like be the travels affiliated with a larger host agency, but we have a smaller team of girls. And so that when we have 15 trips come in on any given week, I'm like, Oh, so-and-so loves out West trips. This person loves honeymoons. This person loves Africa or whatever it is that way. Like, yes, all of our, everyone on our team is still taking trips that aren't their like ideal match, but it's definitely something to where we're able to at least facilitate to people's passions and um, like trips that they love to plan. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in just a minute. We have a question for you. Corinne here of Travel Biz Boss. On a scale from one to I'm a total systems nerd, how optimized is your business right now? As you might have already guessed, Corinne and I are both on the extreme end of the total <laughs> systems nerd spectrum. Although we are two travel advisors who are running very different businesses, no matter how different our day-to-day might look, there is one free tool that is the foundation of both of our businesses, Trello. Just for you, we collaborated in Trello, of course, to create Trello for your travel biz. We both recognized a need in our businesses to organize everything from new leads coming in to all the notes we jotted down during client calls, webinars, and trade shows. We needed a one-stop shop to brain dump, to set goals, to create a marketing plan, to collaborate, and to manage projects. This is all possible in Trello, and we've created a course to show you how this one free tool will enable you to do all of these things and so much more. To learn more and for immediate access to the sessions, head to trelloforyourtravelbiz.com. In these sessions, we take you step-by-step through all of the ways in which we utilize Trello in our businesses. And of course, we've included a set of templates to give you an epic head start. During each session, we guide you to set up the foundation for your travel business. Head over to trelloforyourtravelbiz.com to learn more and to optimize your travel business. Okay, back to the show. Bailey, you mentioned that you wish someone would have sat you down and talked to you in more detail about identifying your ideal client. So I'm curious to know from everyone, what types of details do you feel are important when we're thinking about who our ideal client is? I think this is where I struggled for a long time because I wasn't really sure what type of details I was supposed to be focusing on or identifying. I think travel taste. Um, I think it's really normal to say that you want the people with deep pockets. I think we all enjoy those clients that are big spenders, but we also know that they're not always the most fun people to work with either. (laughs) And I will say it's, it's important to know like what your personal cost of entry is, what budget you have to turn away from. So it's not like one extreme or the other. I because I mean, this is a business we're all trying to make money. But I think it's just important to know like what trips excite you and what your passion points are. Because just when your heart's in it, like Jen was talking about Italy, like when your heart's in it, it's going to be more fun for you. It's less work or it feels like less work. And then the client benefits so much more from it. Like if you're speaking and you're planning and advising from a point of passion, they're going to have a way better experience. Like if someone asked me to plan Disney, like I hate doing Disney. And I'm like, oh my God, I just, I I don't like selling Disney. And I think that people will be able to feel that obviously. So I just have gotten to the point where I'm like, somebody else take this. I'm not the person to do Disney and that's okay. Like, I think it's good to just know what your taste is and like, and, and identifying like exactly as, as far as like trips are concerned, not necessarily the people, but like as far as like what trips you're willing to take, I think that's really important to know what your clients tastes are. And to add to that, I think that it's just as important to make a list of who you don't want to work with. Yeah. Uh, it's just as helpful. This is the kind of trip I don't want to do. And Disney, amen. Uh, I do not want to talk about fast passes, but also a type of client. So like for me, I am not... I don't gravitate toward luxury clients because for me, the values are very important. I need to be working with clients who I want a healthy budget. Don't get me wrong. But I want someone who still appreciates things, who isn't just like, oh, been there, done that. Like I want to be working with a client. I want to know what types of experiences excite them. And even if it's unrelated to the trip we're doing, I still 
always try to think about these are the things that my client is really into my ideal client. These are the things they love. These are the things that excite them. Uh, like for me, it's like eating a meal with strangers. Like that's so huge to me is to just sit at a table with strangers and enjoy a long, delicious meal and talk about who knows what. And in this exercise, I was just describing for myself, I realized I am looking for myself. At this point in my career, having done it for so long, my ideal client is now me. And I want to work <laughs> with other versions of me. And that's just the bottom line. I was like, Ooh, no, that's cool. <laughs> I am so glad you said that because I was working with a copywriter recently and she was really trying to pull this stuff out of me. And I finally just said, I'm describing myself. My ideal client is me. <laughs> seems a little bit normal after you've been doing it for a long time and you've experienced working with all these different types of clients and you've grown through your travels and you start to, you know, accumulate these really strong values about what is important in trips. I think it's normal to, to morph into that, that situation. Uh, but my point was, yeah, writing down what you do want and also writing down what you don't want, because that makes it very easy when you hear it to be like, no. Sometimes you can get sucked into something you know you shouldn't do in your gut because you haven't really identified what the what the no's are. I appreciate that you said that your ideal client isn't always high budget because I geek out on finding the best value for smaller budget trips. Like I get a lot of flack for sharing value itineraries on Facebook and things like that. But let me tell you, there is nothing more fulfilling to me than having someone go to Europe and go to Amsterdam, Brussels and Paris and realizing that they could have a beautiful experience without having to wait their entire life to save up the amount of money to go to these places. So like, I love when I, I used to use a wholesaler and I would find the best dates for economical flights from Orlando. And then I would just fiddle and put this itinerary together and then share it. And I would sell like three every post, which I think is incredible because it would take me an hour to put together. And I'm making about, you know, maybe three to $400 per itinerary. And yeah, that's not everyone's ideal client or ideal sale, but it was more fulfilling for me when they came back and they told me like, I'm so glad that you did this. And I still got to add my personalization because I was picking the properties. It wasn't a canned, you know, group trip or anything like that, which if someone wants that, that's fine. But I was still putting my spin on it and I was just finding the best value. So I love Kareem that you said that because sometimes you get your biggest raving fans and hype people from getting the most value out of a trip. And a lot of the times they refer higher end clients or they turn into those higher end clients yep. as they go through their seasons of life. But doesn't everyone deserve to have amazing enriching experiences? Yes. yes. And I majored in therapeutic recreation in college and we talked a lot about how important leisure time and experiences like this are important to your overall health, your overall sense of well-being. So to me, I'm not looking, I'm not looking for that business, but when someone comes to me and they need the the fulfillment that a trip like this will accomplish and they don't have a big budget, I want like let's just see what can I get you for that money. Yes. Is that what I want to be doing day in and day out? Obviously, because it's harder, it's more time intensive, but I if your heart is in it and this is what you need and I can help you I feel very good about that. I love it. I agree. I agree with all of this. And I definitely have some clients who had a minimum budget and I definitely found so much joy and pleasure in trying to maximize the value of their investment. On the flip side, sometimes it's just not going to work. So saying yeah, no or sure. just having that conversation was really hard for me at the beginning. In speaking about ideal clients, I knew who my ideal client was, but I was still saying yes to every new inquiry I received, no matter how far they were from actually being my ideal client. So I'm curious to know if you all had a similar experience and when did it start to shift that not only were you able to identify your ideal client, we all know who our ideal clients are and what our ideal trip style might look like, but not 100% of our business is going to be filled with those ideal clients. But of course, it should be a large portion, ideally. So how and when did it transform into finding the confidence to say to a new inquiry, you know, I don't think this is going to be a good fit? How did you find the confidence to actually start saying no more often? 
I love this topic, actually, because I think that it's a really delicate one. I think it's a natural reaction to say yes to everything that comes your way, especially in the beginning, because you're just like, I'm new, I need business, you know, like you want to take everything. And so I think I think a little bit of that is healthy because a little bit of it is you're paying beginner dues and you're just getting started. And also it's like, they're great training wheel trips. I think that we all look back on some of the mistakes that we made on smaller trips. And it's like, thank the Lord that was on a $3,000 budget and not a $30,000 budget. Cause that's a lot, that's a different mistake to fix. It's just, I think that they're great training wheel trips. But that being said, there is a fine line that you, I don't know, you just, you have to know when to not cross it. Like talking about taking unnecessarily low budget trips. I think that in the beginning, I was just wanting to make people happy and they would come to me with a budget that was too low and I would just make it work somehow. And in the moment they love you and they're like, oh my gosh, I just got this great deal. Thank you so much. But that feeling is very fleeting because as soon as they travel and the trip is horrible, all that's all they're going to remember. They will only take away from that experience oh my gosh, Bailey sent me to this dump. I don't trust her opinion and I'll never work with her again. And they'll probably tell other people the same thing. So I think that what I learned from that experience, like the handful of times that I definitely did that in the beginning, just trying to make people happy is, is turning it down. So I'll even have people that come to me and say, hey, here's what we want. Here's our credit card. Will you just book it for us? And I'll still say, no, I'm so sorry. I can't do that for you. Because what happens is they come back and they're like, now we know why you wouldn't book that. We are never booking a trip without you again. That place was garbage. We're so sorry that we even asked you to do that. And so when that happens enough times, you get more confidence to say no, but it's really hard to get to that point. But it's it's way better than continuing to try to just like make people happy with a low budget because they're never going to be happy in the long run. I agree with this so much. I mean, I started as one and now there are 10 of us and there are certain parameters on, on specific resorts that I will tell them like we as a company will not sell this because I know the reviews that are going to show up on our company page if you sell this. And for that reason, we actually stopped doing bachelorettes for a while because the budgets were not meeting the level of of quality that we wanted to represent. And even if now it doesn't, we'll still say we don't sell this, but, and to me, the takeaway is always respect everyone's price and their season of life and the budget that they have. Because whatever it is, it's a huge sacrifice in their financial situation. And so I never want to minimize that and be like, I'm not going to work with that budget. It's just not in my personal philosophy because I have had a previous honeymoon, my, my personal honeymoon way back when in another life that went horribly wrong. And it was a $3,500 honeymoon. And now that I know what I know, I sacrificed so much to make a $3,500 trip happen. And I could have gone to someone and had such a better experience. But everyone made me feel like that was a small budget. And clearly, I wasn't working with the right people. So I just come from like an empathetic perspective of whatever that amount of money is, it's a lot of money to someone. So you have to level with them and empower them, even if you don't want to book it for them, empower them with information of either a colleague or a resource that will allow them to get the most value, even if you don't want that trip on your books. Totally. I totally agree. And well, two things. Number one, when people, I'm, I'm, in that same camp where I I realized no matter what the budget is, it is a huge amount of the resources that person has. And so sometimes if I have to say, you know, it just, this destination is not going to work or what you're asking for can't work in that budget. I, uh, for one, say, listen, a cheap vacation is still a very expensive mistake. So if $3,500 is what you have and it turns out terrible, that's, that's stings. Yeah. Uh, Number two, I try to offer an alternative. That can't work. What you're asking for, like that doesn't go together. Explain why your accommodations, like all of that. What about this? Or I at least try to point them in the right direction. The important thing to remember, and we all know this, is that 
saying no doesn't mean no forever to that client. Number one, you're still building your authority. They may respect you for being honest with them. And I will say things like, I would love to sell you this trip and make my commission, but you're going to be miserable and it's going to reflect poorly on me. So I just, it's just not something that I can do, but always trying to offer alternatives or referrals or something. I don't just say no and leave it at that because that person isn't necessarily never going to come back to me. Some of them are going to say, well, mm, a few, you know, like, <laughs> and that's not the client you want anyway. Right. So no harm, right. no foul. Um, but a lot of these people, if you handle it professionally are going to, to respect your professionalism even more. So don't be afraid. I think that there's always a way to handle it. Just like everything you do, that you guys said, like offering some kind of alternative or respectfully referring them elsewhere, or even just being like, hey, you can find a lot cheaper accommodations on like a site that I can't book or like, like Airbnb or something like that. And like, I've been on so many trips with Airbnb and they've been fine. But I think another thing to do is just respectfully ask like, Hey, is there any wiggle room in this budget? Because I think that you would be so shocked to find out how many people come back and say like, Oh yeah, we could throw on a couple extra grand on top of that. And and they just didn't know, like they just didn't know that that was the budget that they could have mentioned, like on a plane or trip form or anything like that. Um, and that's why they're coming to you is for you to be able to say to them, like, hey, for this destination, this is typically like the range that we work in. Is that possible? And they could just be like, oh, yeah, that's totally fine. We just had no idea. I'm so glad you mentioned that because a lot of times people come to us and they say, I want this destination for this many days and this month and this is my budget. And they don't know any better. And I've done exactly that. Sometimes the budget is flexible. Other times the budget is not flexible at all. But I'm able to say, here's the kind of trip I can plan for two weeks as you've requested. Um, But to meet the quality that you're requesting, it could actually happen if we did just an eight day trip. So do you want to shift the number of days that you're traveling or do you really want to maximize your two weeks? And then it's up to them. But at least they feel at that point that they've made an informed decision. So if they go to the destination that we're talking about and they're staying in three-star hotels instead of four-star hotels, they made that decision with intention. So instead of me trying to cram it all into a box that they've created, I sometimes think about disassembling the box to see if we can approach their request from a different angle. And I don't like using the word budget when I'm on a call with people because sometimes people get cringy with that word specifically. So to me, I say price range and that elicits a little bit more of a sense of flexibility. Like you don't have to know the precise number, but if you even at least give me a range, I can tell you if that's realistic. And when they come back with what I know is an unrealistic number, I say, okay, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start as conservatively as I feel comfortable in the quality. And it's up to you whether you feel like that's going to be okay with you. And if you want to upgrade, fabulous. If you want to downgrade, it may not be something that that I can do, but at least now you have a jumping off point for planning the trip on your own. And I'm still giving them something. I'm managing the expectations and I'm not saying your budget is, you know, offensive to me because realistically, a lot of honeymooners, young honeymooners, this is their first big trip ever. They've never spent money on a trip before. Right. And so they don't even know what the amount is. So if they pick a bubble on your inquiry form, that may completely be wrong just because they have no idea. And then Aunt Susie might come through with a wedding present that completely changes their budget too. So if you tell them that the Amalfi Coast you're not going to get the best hotel room in the world for 250 whereas in America you might, you know, have a decent room and they just have like a very completely different barometer of what is normal, then that's that's on us to educate. That's an opportunity for us. That's not that's not a to me a a drop dead in the water kind of situation where they're no longer viable as a client. I think another way that you can look at this too is like talking about like cramming something into their their box like you mentioned sometimes you could do that and they're really happy with the turnout and that's great too I think that there's definitely people that are totally fine traveling a certain style and I think that's why you kind of like go back to your travel taste like what's that your ideal client looking for because if you do it for them and they're really happy they're going to refer others that will want that same type of trip. And that might not be ideal for your business model. And I think it's just important to 
consider that. Like it's, it's not about whether or not the client will be happy. It's like, okay, if they refer five others that want that same type of trip, is that what, what is going to fit your business model? Cause we all have our number in our head. I can take on this many new trips a week. I know my max, whatever. And you want to be filling that with like, again, this is a business and you want to be making money. You want to be filling that with your ideal trip types and your ideal clients. And if that's going to create a bad kind of like snowball effect, you want to avoid that when you can. I was going to add to Jennifer's strategy about um, offering a sort of middle conservative, as conservative as you're comfortable. Depending on the client, I will often go the opposite route. They will tell me what their budget is and they will tell me everything they want to do. And I will say, here's your itinerary. This has everything you ever wanted. Here are my ideas if you want to cut it back. We could do this hotel instead. We could take off this tour or whatever. Nine times out of 10, they're like, nope, I'm going to need that itinerary and here's my credit card. So it that's not going to work for everybody. But if I get the feeling that they are just scared or they don't know what their budget is, but they are clear about what they want, I'm going to show them what they want. And I'm going to show them that I heard them and here are my ideas for how we could get this budget down. But I want to show you what you asked for. Again, not for everybody, but it can be quite effective. <laughs> No, I love that. And I love that you said that in contrast to mine, because you're you're absolutely correct. I just had this situation yesterday where it was a difference of $3,000 for three nights in a room category. And I went with the higher because I knew that to her, what she expressed to me was the quality of the experience from the hotel itself. And so I was like, I know this is paramount in her planning. So I'm not going to go with the lower because she might say yes to the lower And then that's on me where they could have had a terrace room overlooking the Amalfi Coast. And I took that away from her by listening and being an order taker versus painting the picture of what I know she really wanted. And guess what? She came back and said, the higher price room is not an issue for us. Thank you so much. We're definitely going with the terrace. So I 100% just ditto everything you just said. Hey, Masters in Travel, like me and probably like you, most travel advisors are working from home by themselves. So often we're navigating challenges in a silo, constantly reinventing the wheel, trying to figure out what the next best step is. When in reality, we're all navigating similar challenges. So why are we doing it alone? We learn so much by simply being around other travel advisors, being in the same room, virtual or in person, listening to everyone's thoughts, ideas, and questions. With the Masters in Travel, community and think tank, I've simply created the room. You might not always have a specific question to ask and that's okay. We learn a lot by listening. We learn a lot by staying curious and by simply being in the room. Every so often, I'll start the conversation with prompts and conversation starters to bubble up thoughts, ideas, and questions you didn't realize you had. You know me, I always have questions to get the conversation started. The Masters in Travel community and think tank is where you can bring your questions, your challenges, and your ideas to a safe space to brainstorm, collaborate, and gather insights from other advisors' experiences. No more throwing spaghetti at the wall. Join our community of entrepreneurial, growth-minded travel advisors to really move the needle in your business and to accelerate your success. To learn more and to sign up for the Masters in Travel community and think tank, go to community.mastersintravel.co. That's community.mastersintravel.co. Okay, back to the show. So we've talked a lot about ideal clients and ideal budgets. Have you encountered situations in where the destination is good, the budget is good, um, but it's actually the client's approach to travel or their approach to that particular trip design that has given you a moment of pause and wondering if it's a good fit or not? Do you mean if somebody's an a-hole? <laughs> Thank you for asking. That's really not what I meant uh, to imply. I can provide a more tangible example. I've been doing a lot of introspection into my own business over the last year. And the best definition that I've been able to come up with is that the clients I work best with and the clients that really energize me most approach travel as a lifestyle. And they often come to me, for example, saying, um, we're looking to go away for a month next spring. What ideas do you have? Or I would like to take the kids on a trip in the fall. Where should we go? And the client who comes to me asking for me to come up with some ideas, this excites me so much. I love that part of the process. Um, And recently I received a new inquiry that 
no less than five times in the first five minutes, she said, this is going to be our last hurrah before we have kids. So we have to jam pack all of this in. And she honestly was asking for an insane number of European cities to be included in a two week trip. Like it just like logistically wasn't even going to be possible. And she kept saying, this is going to be our last hurrah. This is going to be our last hurrah. In my mind, I'm thinking, you just told me that your husband doesn't have a passport yet, and this will be his first big international trip. So in my mind, I'm thinking, this is your first hurrah. This is your first trip to Europe. But she was approaching it as if it was their last hurrah. And so I could just feel that this wasn't going to be a good match in energy, like in their approach to the trip. Their their budget was fine. She was willing to pay my research and design fee, but just something didn't feel right. And I didn't feel like we were going to be the best match. So I guess that's kind of what I'm asking. I agree with that completely. And I I tend to see that people approach their first trip as so turn and burn that they think that they can do it all. And what I say is, do you want to come back from this trip more relaxed? And is this a trip or is this a vacation? Because there's such a big difference in that experience and what I'm seeing in 2021. And I'm sure that you all are, except for those that are kind of planning long-term, that we just need a break. And a lot of these are vacations, not trips. But when someone comes to me and they're like, I want to do one night here, I want to do one night here, I will push back and say, I don't feel comfortable doing that because you're not going to get to experience the destination. But at what point, I guess to your question is, when do you just specifically say like, no, that's, that's not what I'm going to do for you. And I think ultimately, I find a reason. And it may not be that it may not be clear. But it may be that they want to do Airbnb for one night. And what I will tell them is like, first of all, I don't work with their Airbnb, but also to check in and check out of an Airbnb, you're waiting for someone. It's not, you know, I kind of tell them the pros and cons of each approach. What I've found, and I feel like you guys probably are the same way, is once you share your piece as to why and you educate the client, they end up agreeing with you because they're coming to you for a reason. You're the professional. But we've all kind of gone up against clients that maybe would not be the best fit. And I I think ultimately you have to find a way to bless and release um, is what we call it. But I think it it goes back to empowering them to do something on their own. But I I agree that that is my least favorite request is when people approach travel as turn and burn and they're not, they're not going to experience it. And I'll just say simply, I'm an experiential travel advisor. And if you're not going to experience the destination, we may not be the best fit. So I think people have respect for honesty in that situation. Bailey, if it's not about budget or about a specific destination, do you have a certain approach to travel that is also part of your ideal client and trip style? And have you also started to draw a line in the sand? You know, maybe the budget is okay. Maybe the destination is okay, but you just, something just doesn't feel right to you. Are you experiencing this sometimes? I would say maybe to a point. I think a lot of the job is just like not not everyone is going to have the same personality type that I might have when traveling. Like I hate personally a churn and burn kind of trip. But if that's something that they're really looking for, I can advise them and like give them my thoughts and try to maybe like sway them if I think it's necessary. But if at the end of the day, that's what they want to do, well, then that's what they want to do. And like, that's great for them too. I think there's part of that, but where I have, I think most recently kind of found like myself in a similar situation to that is sometimes even with like friends and family, if I feel like they just are using me because they feel like they need to be a good friend or family member to do so. I have found myself releasing them from that obligation almost like in in a nice way. Cause I definitely have friends and family members who are some of my favorite clients. And I know it's because they truly value whether they know me or not personally, they truly value what I bring to the table and they, they would work with me regardless of if they knew me or not. But other people who I feel like maybe they're just working with me to feel like they're being a good person in my life. I I will say to them like, Hey, I'm that's okay. Like, I know you love to do this yourself. I don't want to take that away from you. So if it's a situation like that, where I know that they genuinely will be happier planning it without me, I'm like, that's okay. Like, don't feel like you have an obligation to to use me. Or if it's like, they want to book something, but they have like a gazillion Southwest points and or like anything like that, like with hotels or whatever. I'm like, hey, 
between you and me, I'm not going to make any money on this. And like, just do it yourself. No big deal. Like, I'm not going to be upset about it. I will say things like, not everyone is a good fit for a travel advisor. And just like what you said, like you, that's time well spent for you, all that research and stuff. Like, don't worry. And I appreciate you thinking of me. And so that will actually transfer over to my big pet peeve, which is when I start to push back is the client that wants you to do it, but they also want to do it. And also will create a situation where they want you to compete with them. That's when I draw the line. Now I am really flexible, just like you said, Bailey, as long as we have talked it through and I have put it in writing that I don't recommend this turn and burn trip, but that's what you want. You're the boss. This is your resources. I'm here to guide you. If that's what you want, that's what we're going to do. But when it comes down to what about this and what about that? And they're sending you emails and they're trying to like pick apart the trip and piece it together. And, and that's when I have to come in and say, you know, not everyone is a good fit to work with an advisor. I'm not sure that I can add any value to this process. It sounds like you really want to plan this trip for yourself. You know, if there's a fee involved, I can say, you know, like if you want to put it together and have me look it over and fill in any gaps, I'm happy to do that. Um, but we have to decide who's planning the trip here. Or I'll just find some other excuse to if it's going to, because sometimes the, the type of person who's going to do that is also going to be very confrontational and it can become an ugly situation. But aside from that, regardless of what their values are, sometimes I don't enjoy it as much, but it's fine. As long as they don't push me to that point where I feel like uh, I'm in a competition and you're just nailing me um, day after day with stuff, I'm usually good. You reminded me of a, a recent inquiry I received and it, it just wasn't a good match. I'm sitting here asking you guys how you say no, but if I, if I think about it, the last two that didn't feel like a good match to me, we we actually it was a mutual realization, so I didn't actually have to say no. Um, this particular uh, request came and she wanted to book her flights with points. She knew which hotel she wanted and she was essentially dictating to me what she wanted me to do. Like, this is what I want. This is where I want to stay. This is what I want to do. And I told her, I can do this for you, but I don't think that I'm going to be able to bring any value to this trip request. And if I'm not able to elevate your experience or to add any value, then I'm not sure that it makes sense for us to work together. Um, that was kind of my way to bless and release. Yeah, that's my new favorite term. Thanks, Jen. Bless and release though. <laughs> So I'm curious to know if we all went back to square one, we would really hone in on that ideal client, really lean into what that means, what that person looks like, what host agency systems and services are going to serve that type of business. And that would drastically affect the trajectory of our business in the first few years. I'm curious to know in thinking about this topic, if there were any other small minor changes that you thought about doing differently, if you started your businesses over today, knowing what you know now. I feel like I'm always making small refinements and tweaks to my process. I mean, like my qualification process today is just so different from it, what it was back then. Um, the way that I encourage my clients to communicate with me, I do feel like you have to communicate the way your clients prefer to a certain extent, but then you can also have your own boundaries. So when it comes to just boundaries and qualifying and just getting, it's like time wasters, right? Like there are just things that took so much longer back in the beginning because you didn't know how to get to the meat of things faster. Uh, but I think that I have always and will always continue to just keep improving and refining and improving and refining. Yeah, I think that understanding from the beginning that it that will always be a part of your journey, at least from my experience, don't be afraid to start something until it's perfect. Like, Sometimes you just need to start. Sometimes you just need to get going. And then that's how you learn. And you adjust your processes. You adjust your systems. You adjust all of these different things. And it's kind of like you're just like always trying to get a little bit better each and every day. Don't not start something because you don't feel like it's absolutely perfect in the moment. Like just understand that you're always going to be growing. We all are. If you're not, you're not doing a good job, I don't think. I agree 100%. I love that. And honestly, if I look back at all of the small changes and tweaks, I would say the vast majority of them have come from learning moments. Like, oh, if I would have asked this up front, it would have saved us a lot of back and forth. You know, it might just be a change of one line and one email or one question on my form, but you're right. It's the constant tweaking. It never ends, which, which is good. Yeah. And look to other advisors as well. I think this community is like 
one of the coolest in that it's really big on community over competition kind of thing. And so learning from others is never a bad idea either. Like you're talking about like little small tweaks and little small words. Like I just learned something from Jen earlier that she doesn't like to use the word budget. She likes to use the word price range. And I'm like, okay, wait, I kind of love that. Like, Mm -hmm. should we change that on our form? Um, I, I just think it's like, it's always good to have a listening ear for other people as well, because I mean, we're all better together anyways. So Bailey, Jennifer, Corrine, this has been so great. Thank you for your openness, for your transparency, and for your honesty about all of the lessons that we've learned along the way and what we might do differently. Thank you for your willingness and for your enthusiasm to be a part of the conversation. Thank you for having me. Thanks for having us. This is fun. We'll do it again. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Masters in Travel. If you want more, head over to mastersintravelpod.com for show notes and links to the resources we discussed in today's episode. If you loved today's interview as much as I did, please take a moment to leave a review, subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and be sure to share this podcast with an advisor who is ready to level up their travel business. To continue the conversation, find us on Instagram at Masters in Travel, where we preview upcoming episodes and engage with our listeners to decide what topics to cover next. We'll see you next time.